everyone, and welcome to Flyover State Science, a podcast where two Midwestern scientists demystify the coolest science out of the middle of the country. I'm Kelsey. And I'm Jackie. And we're here to do the research so that you don't have to. Welcome to the second episode of Flyover State Science. First off, thank you to everyone who listened to our first episode on viruses and vaccines. Thanks for taking the time to listen. Please remember to subscribe to our podcast and to rate and review us on iTunes. And you can like us on SoundCloud. Just please give us positive reinforcement. Please. We did make it into a milestone, though. Yes, episode two. Yay. We're excited. (laughs) And so we're very excited about our second episode, which is all about space. This episode is going to be out of this world. And I'm very sorry that I just made that joke. And in the first part of our space-themed episode, we're going to talk to an astronomer about the highly anticipated solar eclipse that's passing right over the Midwest in just a few weeks. Then for the second part of this episode, if talking about the total eclipse inspires you to gaze once more at the sky, we're going to tell you about what you can see from your own backyard when looking at the night sky and how you can best see it. And we're going to wrap up with another segment of our Science Mythbusters where we ask the question, are mushrooms radioactive? That is a question that I never thought I would hear a person actually ask, so I'm very glad that we got a chance to dive into this. So join us. Jackie and I interviewed Michael Bakich, the senior editor of Astronomy Magazine, and he is also a guest speaker at the Total Solar Eclipse 2017 event hosted by Missouri Western State University. For more information on the Total Solar Eclipse 2017 event, check out our Facebook. Michael, welcome to the show. Hi, pleased to meet you. Hi, thanks for taking your time to chat with us. We're really excited. No problem. Uh, So, Michael, we saw that you had kind of an interesting sort of educational background. And uh, would you mind telling us a little bit about just how you got into astronomy to begin with? Sure. When I was in third grade... My parents bought me a set of Constellation flashcards. And my mom would hold one up and I'd say, ooh, that's Orion the Hunter, or ooh, that's Leo the Lion. And the cards had, you know, facts on the back. And like any kid, you know, we did this over and over and over again. And finally one day, my mom, in her infinite wisdom, said, you know, why don't you go outside one night and see if you can find one of these in the real sky? And I remember it was spring. I don't remember which constellation it was, but the first night I went out with these constellation cards, I actually found one of them in the sky. And from that moment on, I wanted to be an astronomer. So that's that's how I got into it. Then I went to uh, the Ohio State University um, for <laughs> undergrad. When I graduated, there really weren't any jobs in astronomy, you know, back then. Just, it was, it was a lull, you know, the space program wasn't really very active and a lot of things weren't happening. So I decided to do the next best thing and go into public relations for astronomy. 
So I got a master's degree in planetarium education, and I've worked in nine planetariums throughout my life, but you know, now I'm at uh, Astronomy Magazine and have been for 14 years now. That's a really great story. Do you think the field of astronomy is changing as we get new technologies? Absolutely. <clears throat> you know, every, every uh, year, you know, there's some new big discovery based on technology. So it's not just an astronomer in a remote observatory by himself anymore doing the research. It's the technicians, it's the computer programmers, you know, it's the physicists and the chemists. Everybody is contributing to the knowledge of astronomy today. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's really a, a popular and, uh, and fairly growing field. Now, it's not like medicine or something like that, but, uh, you know, a lot, of, uh, a lot of new data coming out. That's wonderful. Well, we're, we're, we have been very excited keeping track of the eclipse and other things, and we're really looking forward to seeing how the event goes in just a few days now. And so I was just kind of curious how you got to be involved with the St. Joe eclipse activities. Sure. Um, you know, it starts about 20 years ago when uh, my wife and I got married. Her parents lived in St. Joan, they have for years. And as an astronomer, I knew that the path of the total part of this eclipse was going to pass right through St. Joseph. And I thought, oh boy, you know, her, dad's a, her, her dad's a chef quality cook. I thought, oh, party time. You know, we'll invite family, we'll invite friends. And through the years, you know, the uh, the number of invites grew and grew and you know, my entire life I've been doing outreach for astronomy, and finally, about five years ago, I came to the conclusion that, you know, I just, I had to do it one more time. So, one night, my wife was talking to her parents, and I said, you know, whoever's on the phone, let me chat with them, and it was her mom. And I explained a bit about the eclipse and the fact that the airport in St. Joseph would be, you know, just a perfect site. And I said, you know, you guys have lived there for a long time, do you know anybody there? And her mom's exact reply was, I might, I'm on the board. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> so, so it, you know, we sent her some materials, she duplicated them, and at the next board meeting, which was like four years ago, they approved, you know, the uh, the plan to do a public event for the eclipse. And that's that's how it happened. So you've been, this has been a long time coming, <laughs> the St. Joe. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, <laughs> astronomers can predict where and when eclipses will happen hundreds, even thousands of years into the future. So, you know, the, the fact that, you know, this eclipse was going to happen was well known to everybody. Not only that, but this is a special eclipse to uh, the United States, specifically the continental United States, you know, you might have heard it called our eclipse or America's eclipse or the great American eclipse. And that's because the path of the total eclipse touches no land on Earth except for the continental United States. Other places may get a bit of partial eclipse, mm -hmm. but the total eclipse on land only happens in the United States. You know, it starts in the Pacific Ocean, it ends in the Atlantic Ocean, but the main part, the mid part, is over the, uh, the United States. Now, has that happened um, in the past? 
It has. The last time the uh, well, the last time the United States saw an eclipse was 1991, a total eclipse, but that was in Hawaii. So the last time for the continental United States was February 1979, and that was way up in the Northwest, you know, Montana and, mm -hmm. and Washington and those states. Um, and it was February, so you know the weather wasn't that great. Yeah. Before that, it was 1970. Um, the last eclipse to cross from coast to coast happened 99 years ago, back in 1918. So, uh, yeah, this is it's pretty special. And for the most part, everybody you talk to, you know, to a high degree of accuracy, will never have seen a total eclipse. You know, a few people will here and there, but, you know, the likelihood that I or you or anybody would talk to one is pretty rare. So is there anything in particular that astronomers are hoping to learn from this upcoming eclipse? You know, technology has advanced to the point where astronomers now can use images actually taken by the public. And there are a couple um, plans to do that. And, and that would be to have the public set up all along the eclipse path, taking pictures of the total part of the eclipse. You know, totality only lasts at maximum two minutes and 40 seconds at any one point. So you might think, well, the only, I mean, the, the longest totality that anybody could see is two minutes and 40 seconds. And you can double or triple that if you're in a jet trying to stay, you know, up with the shadow. But if you have people taking pictures all along the path, you can put together an hour and a half movie of what this outer atmosphere of the sun looks like. And the only thing you see from the sun during a total eclipse is what's called the corona, and it's the outer atmosphere of the sun. It's a million times fainter than the sun's face, which is why we never see it at any other time. It's only during the total part of a solar eclipse. So astronomers are hoping to get a long-term movie, really, of the eclipse. And one of the projects actually is called the Mega Movie. And they are going to be combining, you know, there'll be some professional astronomers taking images, but mostly this will be a, a public endeavor where people, you know, there's a website where they can uh, send their images in and astronomers will, you know, um, align them, correct them, and then you know, assemble them into this movie, that's going to be pretty exciting to see. And I love the fact that it's getting so many people involved. It's getting just average Joe citizens to interact with the solar eclipse and be a part of that. That's just great. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely right. Now, a question with that. So do they expect to see the corona changing over that time? I mean, is it always dynamic and moving? You know, it is, and it just depends. Now, over, over an hour and a half, if you're just looking with your eye, you probably wouldn't see that much of a change. Okay, you might see a little bit, but it would have to be, you know, a large-scale change for you to notice it with your eye. But people taking pictures with cameras and uh, telephoto lenses or through telescopes Astronomers are hoping to see the inner part of the corona, the, the part closest to the sun. Now, to our eyes, that kind of looks um, 
like the densest part of, of the corona. Mm-hmm. But to a camera, you know, you might be able to see small details and small changes in there. And that's, uh, that's one of the exciting things that they're hoping to find, absolutely. I think for a second, we'll back up. And for anyone who's been watching the media and just seeing this big eclipse coming, but they don't really, they haven't looked into it, they don't quite know what a solar eclipse is, um, could you briefly explain kind of what's going on out in space in order for the sun to get sure. blocked out? You bet. So <clears throat> a solar eclipse is the exact lineup of the sun, the moon, and Earth with, with the moon in the middle. Now, every month, roughly, the moon passes between Earth and the sun. But sometimes it's above the line made by Earth and Sun, and sometimes below. At least a couple times every year, though, it's in direct alignment. And so often we get what we call eclipses, okay, at least twice a year, sometimes as many as five solar eclipses a year. Now, eclipses can be total, like this one, or they can be partial, so that only part of the Sun is covered, or there's a third type of eclipse that's called an annular eclipse. And annular or annulus is the Latin word that means ring. Okay, and what happens there is that the moon is too far from Earth for its dark inner shadow to make a total eclipse anywhere. But it's still directly aligned with the sun, so it appears smaller than the sun, and you see a ring of the sun's disk around it, and that's called an annular eclipse. But fortunately, the, the great event, the total eclipse, is happening. My goodness, is it really only nine days yeah. away? Or no, no, <laughs> 11 days away? The Good final grief. stretch. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I did my first blog about this eclipse 1,500 days before the event. And I thought, oh, man, this is, this is crazy. It's going to be forever. And it feels like it just went like that, you know. I mean, it's it's incredible. And the, the buildup of interest with the public, you know, with schools and with the media has been, I mean, incredible, especially during this past month. And I would imagine for the next week and a half, it's going to continue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's already the news outlets are all picking it up and there's lots of chitter chatter. Oh, yes. <laughs> So would you say of all the cosmic events to witness, the other types of eclipse, meteor showers, is this kind of the top of the list? Like this is the one to see? This is the top of the list. And not just in astronomy. Anybody who sees totality usually describes it as the greatest sight they've ever seen in their life. If you you stand under, you know, uh, darkness in the middle of the day, you'll never forget it. I mean, it's, it's really incredible. People's lives have been changed by this. You know, they've, they, they think, oh, you know, let's go see the eclipse. And then they become dedicated eclipse chasers and they travel all over the world. <laughs> <You know? laughs> just, to, just to stand in that dark inner shadow of the moon for a few minutes at a time. Mm-hmm. It's taken me all over the world. I've led, you know, a number of groups here, there, and everywhere, just some spectacular places. So I did have a question. We were speaking last night about, um, obviously, St. Joe, the totality is going, the coverage is going to be 100%. 
But in the surrounding Kansas City area, um, people were saying that the eclipse coverage is going to be upwards of 99%. Is it worth it for all of us to go to St. Joe to get that 100% eclipse experience? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, so so let's take the, that extreme example, 99%. So what, what's going to be the difference between what somebody you know, in Kansas City with a 99% eclipse will see, as opposed to somebody, not just in St. Joe, but anywhere along the path of the total eclipse? Your sky, if your eclipse is 99% total, will be, I kid you not, 10,000 times brighter than anywhere along the path of totality. Oh, wow. And that's with a, that's with a 99% eclipse. If your eclipse is only 90%, your sky is 100,000 times brighter than in the path of totality. And you don't see any of the cool effects that you see during the total eclipse. You don't see the corona. You don't see um, sunset colors all around the horizon. You don't see stars in the daytime. I mean, there are a lot of things that you'll miss if you're outside the path of totality. So if you can get to where the eclipse is total, and it it doesn't have to be St. Joe. Um, You know, it can be, uh, there are a lot of uh, outlying communities that are doing events and and, uh, stuff like that all along the path. Um, if, If you can get to totality, I'd strongly suggest that you do that. <laughs> yeah. So you kind of mentioned some of these other phenomenon that are going on during the eclipse. Right. Yeah, I'm really unfamiliar with kind of the, other than the sky getting dark, what's going on. Well, okay, so even, even in the partial phases of the eclipse, there are certain things that you can see. Okay, now, the, whenever the, the moon only partly covers the sun, I just want to say you have to protect your eyes. You have to have a an approved um, solar filter or pair of solar glasses to watch any of the partial phases. Now, the opposite is true during totality. You, you don't use a filter during totality because if you try to use a filter when the moon totally covers the sun, you won't see anything, and that would be a shame. So in the buildup to totality, one of the things that you'll see if you have any oh, trees or bushes around is that the gaps between the leaves will actually form pinhole cameras, and you'll see up to hundreds of little crescent suns projected on the ground. <laughs> That's actually pretty cool. Wow. Another thing that happens and in the lead-up to totality, and this is... This is, you know, you really start noticing it when the eclipse approaches about 90% and more. But you'll know, even before that, you'll notice that if you look at, and I, I hate to say look away from the sun, but, you know, this is a partial eclipse. If you look at your shadows, okay, on a normal day, your shadow eh, kind of looks a little bit fuzzy. But as the eclipse approaches total, the sun approaches a point source. And point sources cast really sharp shadows. So one of the things that you can notice in the buildup to totality is that your shadow is getting really, really sharp, and that's kind of cool to look at. Uh, another thing that you'll notice, let me think about probably somebody else. If you're, if you're with a group, somebody about 25 minutes before totality will spot 
Venus in the sky because Venus is about, well, it'll be about 34 degrees away from the sun, okay? So it's bright, you know, at, at, uh, at night, it's really bright. I mean, if you're, if you're away from the city, Venus can cast a shadow. It's the third brightest object in the sky next to the sun and the moon. So when the sun is almost covered, Venus will appear, and people will, you know, marvel at that. And then a little bit later on, from St. Joe, for sure, um, Jupiter will appear. It's, it'll be much lower in the sky, but somebody will, somebody will pick that out and, and notice it. Uh, if, you're, if you're, you know, way in the northwest, like up in Oregon and Idaho and Wyoming, Jupiter will not have risen by the time of the eclipse. So you won't see, you'll, you'll still see Venus, but you won't see Jupiter. But from St. Joe, you can see. And then, you know, depending on a lot of things, you know, are there any high clouds in the sky? You know, what's the humidity? We'll see a few stars during the daytime. You know, the brightest star in the sky, its name is Sirius, is going to be up. Surely we'll see that one. How many other stars we'll see, I can't predict. You never know. But if it's a nice dark eclipse, if it's a dry day, then, uh, you know, we might see half a dozen, maybe even a dozen stars. I got to tell you, my biggest fear yeah. right now is that it's going to be overcast. Absolutely. Yeah, everybody's biggest fear. You know, I mean, <clears throat> this eclipse is unlike a lot of the ones that, you know, I've had to travel to. China, to Russia, to the Mediterranean, to Easter Island, you know, you worry about traveling, you know, you're so, but this one, travel is easy. And the main concern is, you know, clouds. Um, so yeah, that's, that's definitely the, uh, the main concern of everybody. You know, ordinarily, August 21st, across the United States, is a pretty good day. But that's not a prediction. It's not a guarantee. Mm -hmm. Those are climate models. And one thing I tell people whenever I do a talk about the eclipse is you can't go by climate. You have to go by weather. Mm -hmm. And weather really only takes effect three days before and even a couple days before the event. So August 19th, we'll have a good idea um, of you know, especially in the evening, you know, that's less than 48 hours before the mm -hmm. eclipse. Um, we'll have a good idea what the weather is going to be along the whole path. So don't start panicking yet. <laughs> Wait until, you know, three or two days before the eclipse to, you know, to get your stress on. Um, would you say, though, if it was slightly overcast, would it still be worthwhile to go see it? I mean, will you get some of those effects even if there was some cloud Absolutely. cover? Yeah, I mean, if the clouds aren't thick, and I've seen, um, I've seen several eclipses with high cirrus clouds, thin high cirrus. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you still see sunlight on the ground, but, you know, you can tell that there are clouds up in the sky. And one time, I'll tell you, back in, uh, first time I ever saw this, in 1994, I was in Peru, with a group viewing a total solar eclipse. And one thing I didn't expect was there were some thin, high clouds. I mean, no problem seeing, you know, the eclipse and the corona and stuff like that. But what I didn't expect was that as, as totality approached in those last few seconds, you could see the moon's shadow coming overhead on the clouds. And it looked, literally looked like 
somebody was pulling a blind overhead. It was really something. It was it was incredible. What a sight. You know, now that said, I don't wish clouds, even thin clouds, on uh, anybody. Uh, you know, and I want I want the maximum viewing possible for uh, for everybody. But uh, but yeah, thin clouds not a problem. Thick clouds, bad. Um, now, is there anything else that you would like kind of people to know about the eclipse? Or yes, yes, there is. There is one thing. Now, <clears throat> in addition to being senior editor here at Astronomy Magazine, I'm also photo editor so all the great pictures come to me and i'm telling people believe it or not don't try to photograph this eclipse because remember the total part of the eclipse lasts only two minutes and 40 seconds maximum okay maximum if you're fooling with a camera and something goes wrong you're going to waste valuable time looking down when you should be looking up Enjoy the moment while it lasts for all That's right. maximum two minutes and 40 seconds of it. Excellent. Well, thank you so very much for your time. You're welcome, and thank you for spreading the word about what will be one of the greatest events in our lifetime. If the first segment of today's episode was inspiring to you to go outside and look at the sky, please do it with the appropriate safety protection for your eyes. But a safer time to look at the sky is at night. And the cool thing about astronomy and gazing up at the night sky is that you can do it for essentially free and from the comfort of your own backyard. The nice thing about living in the Midwest is that planetary bodies and celestial bodies are very easily viewable from our homes and our like neighborhoods and areas. The light pollution from bigger cities and having lots of streetlights and buildings and everything tends to make it more difficult to actually see stars and planets and stuff in the sky. So you could just stroll out right on your back porch and just gaze upwards at night and you're as long as the skies are fairly clear, you are good to be able to see at least a couple of stars. I think about those cool pictures from outer space where you can see all the light in the major metropolitan communities and right through the Midwest. Dark. It's coming in our favor. <laughs> it's not barren. We're just very energy efficient. The cows just don't need that much light. <laughs> Neither does wheat or corn, just from the sun. So if you're interested in looking up at the sky and seeing what there is to see, it's a little overwhelming to know where to start. The good thing about it is you really don't need any accessories to begin with. So you can basically look at the sky through either just your naked eye or with some sort of enhancement lens through like binoculars or a telescope. But when you're looking with your naked eye at the sky, you can see uh, the general stuff. So you can see stars, you can see constellations, and you can even see a handful of planets. Two of the planets that you could see are Mercury and Venus. And those are really interesting planets because since they are closer to the sun than Earth, they appear as bright planets in the sky. They're small, they don't look to be too much bigger than stars, but they're bright and these two tend to be seen around the path of the sun a little after sunset or before sunrise in the mornings. This is just because of where we are passing them and them being closer to the sun in orbit than Earth. Do they move through the night sky, like, quickly? 
So actually, planets do move through the night sky when we're just on Earth and watching them. And so Mercury and Venus move pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. But you can also see Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn with your naked eye. And those do move through the sky as well, but they're a little bit more slow. One time I mistook Mars for a plane, and I felt really, really smart. Happens to the best of us. Right. Well, Mars is pretty visible because it tends to show up as a red, like, large star. And it's easy to mistake it for a star or a plane if you don't have your brain screwed in right that day uh, because of its pretty distinctive color. But Jupiter and Saturn are also visible with your naked eye, although you can't see any details or anything like that. But if you are interested in upgrading uh, from planets and just constellations, then you can just grab yourself a pair of binoculars and this can really enhance your sky viewing experience. One of my favorite things to do is to try to identify the three or four constellations that I can remember from uh, growing up and looking at that traveling inflatable planetarium. That was the best day of elementary school. What was your favorite constellation? Oh, Orion. It's the only one I can find. It's surefire, though. <laughs> yeah, I see that belt, and I'm like, yep, that's my guy. I see him. I'm a very, very standard, basic, big dipper sort of lady. But the cool thing about it is that when you're looking for these favorite constellations that you have, you can just aim your binoculars at some of the stars either in or around them, and what appears to be one star with your naked eye, you hold up the binoculars, and all of a sudden what you realize is that one star is actually a cluster of stars that were just so close together slash far away from you that they appear to be one. So it's like you've, the night sky expands exponentially with the more magnification that you have to be able to look at it. I don't think I ever thought about using binoculars to look at the night sky. Like I always thought, you know, you have to have a telescope. It seems insufficient. Like, what could I do with binoculars besides spy on my neighbors and other birds in the trees? Turns out you can look at the sky and you can totally expand your viewing experience. And it's really cool because with the binoculars, you can also uh, totally appreciate some of the colors of the stars a little bit better. Because stars go through such a, they go through different colors throughout their life cycle. They're white or blue or red, just depending on where they are, whether or not they're new stars or they're mature stars or they're dying stars. So the binoculars are very kind of cool, and they're something that everyone has in their junk drawer. Totally. But if you really want to just upgrade to the premium sky experience, uh, a telescope is the way that you can do that. And you don't need to have like a NASA-grade telescope in order to appreciate the sky, but even just something from Walmart would really, really do you quite well. And that's when you start getting to the really exciting stuff because with a telescope, you can see not just planets, but the faces of planets. You can see the ice caps on Mars. You can see things like mountainscapes. You can see, um, some people claim that you can even, if you're very lucky, you can see clouds rolling across like Mars and Jupiter. Uh, you can see some of the definition on like Jupiter, and you can see the rings of Saturn. That's too cool. It just, it blows my mind. <laughs> um, I actually have not seen the rings on Saturn, but this episode is inspiring me to go out and give it another go. Uh, you can also see the, some of the moons of Jupiter, especially uh, the four biggest ones. The cool thing is, is that there's different levels of accessibility, but even at its most basic level, you can just walk outside and just gaze at the night sky, but... 
even knowing what there is to see, it's still kind of challenging because what you're going to see in the sky is going to change based on which hemisphere you're in, whether it's northern or southern, and what season it is. So in different three-month intervals, you're going to see different constellations and different planets in the sky. And they're going to shift based on what time it is and based on where the Earth is in relation to the sun. So what you can do is, I found some of these today, is you can just search what is um, like the sky today or something. Skyandtelescope.com has a really nice one uh, called This Week's Sky at a Glance. We're not advertising for them. They just had a really nice website. And a lot of these people will have maps that will show you what you can expect to see based on the horizon and the moon where constellations are that make it easy for even a regular person to just walk outside and spy a constellation that they haven't seen since the traveling planetarium in elementary school. I just foresee this being so much fun for people with small children or in my case a niece and a nephew and going out and trying to find these constellations. I just think that would just be so cool. It's very cool and it's something that's uh, very humbling almost as a human, someone so small on this planet that seems unfathomably big, to look up at the sky and realize how big things are and how far away they are from you. And we're fortunate here in the Midwest, you're really within just an hour drive of somewhere, like you mentioned earlier, that doesn't have a lot of light pollution. So you can kind of get away from that light and really be exposed to that expansive sky and the beautiful stars and the planets very quickly. And a lot of these places, um, you don't even need to just go out into the middle of a field alone. Even in the Midwest, what they have is lots of planetariums and observatories that their whole job is to, their whole life mission is to bring you towards a really expensive telescope and look at the sky. Or um, maybe not as expensive, but... Uh, you know, they want, but they want you to come and appreciate. So they'll have the shows that will show you where constellations are based on like projections, or they will, you know, guide you through meteor showers and things like that. In the Kansas City area, there's a few observatories just around us. And just south of the metro area is Powell Observatory. It's volunteer ran by the Astronomy Society of the state. And they have events every Friday night for the public. And so if you're not wanting to, you know, invest in a big telescope or any telescope at all, this is a really great opportunity to just go and use a really great scope. And these aren't unique to Kansas City either. Um, basically, a lot of universities will have an observatory of some sort. So the closest university or larger city area that you have available to you, if you're interested in one of these really cool free events, so you can just look them up online and just search for your your area and observatory and see what comes up and i didn't appreciate this but i never knew the difference between an observatory and a planetarium i still don't so brace yourself here it comes so an observatory actually has a telescope in it but a planetarium is a dome-shaped building where they will project the night sky or images of space onto the dome so it kind of gives you it's a planet sky theater as opposed to actually having a telescope in it, whereas the observatory is like for viewing the night sky. That makes sense. I always thought they were interchangeable. Yeah, no, no. But that's nice. That's that's good to know because both of them are unique and interesting, and oh, yeah. one of them is not confounded by clouds or rain. 
Yeah, and this you'll find planetariums in dense city areas. So we have one here in downtown Kansas City. Just so when you get ready to take your family to go see planets, you know what you're getting into, planetarium versus observatory. So thinking about some of these observatories with these big telescopes, um, so obviously the observatories in the Midwest with these big telescopes, these are not on the scale of what we're using at the NASA level to like collect data for the future of mankind. Is there a reason why these don't exist in the Midwest? There is. There is, there is. And it has a lot to do with the quality of the air that we have in the Midwest. Jackie, what is wrong with my air? It's completely fine. <laughs> it's completely fine. Um, however, um, so for example, there are some major telescopes in Hawaii on the tops of mountains. And what's different between these mountaintops of Hawaii and Kansas or the Midwest is everything. <laughs> is everything. <laughs> but with regards to telescopes, it has a lot to do with the very low humidity, very low levels of dust, and very low air turbulence that is experienced at the top of these mountains in Hawaii versus pretty much anywhere else in the world. It's some of the clearest, most quiet air there is in the world. There's just not a lot of disturbances. Which is baffling because I've climbed to the top of a couple of not huge mountains, but mountains nonetheless, and it is very windy to a person but perhaps it is wind versus actual disruptions in the air from planes and jets and things like that. It may be something also. So I'm assuming you climbed landlocked mountains? Yes, they were landlocked. So because the Hawaiian islands are surrounded just by open ocean, it might be that the air coming at it is very straight. Oh. And so it's not experienced all these like crazy windswept like jet stream. I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> But they say it's very good, <laughs> very good air. Um, and so when you're you're making very, very careful measurements of the sky and the sun or the planets, whatever a telescope's observing, you want the clearest air possible. That makes sense. That's a sounds kind of an interesting mental image for someone who's never been to Hawaii, thinking about this beautiful mountain range with telescope, telescope, telescope. but. It is. It's, it's kind of, that's an interesting debate because amongst native Hawaiians, it's quite controversial that they have all these telescopes at the top of these mountains because the top of the mountains are actually very sacred places and they have a lot of altars and religious sites. And so that's been an interesting conflict between the people of Hawaii and wanting to preserve this very important site and also the placement of these telescopes to gain valuable scientific information so yeah that's a difficult one that's we want to be respectful of people's you know their culture and their heritage and hopefully that there's a resolution that mm -hmm. can be respectful of people's cultures and not just bulldoze every mountaintop but still find a way to be able to make these because they're trying to build a very big telescope down there right they are it's a good example of kind of the benefit that this telescope may bring us versus you know balancing with the needs of the people and the community around it so this new telescope is called the dkist solar telescope and it's going to be completed in just a few years it's a lot of work has already went into it and its job is to look at the sun. And what it's really looking at is all the magnetic fields on the surface of the sun. And why we care about this 
is that when those magnetic fields get condensed and there's a magnetic explosion on the surface of the sun, it sends up those solar flares and the mass coronal ejections that pretty much just spew massive amounts of charged particles out into space. And if that is facing Earth, those particles will hit our atmosphere and our magnetosphere and it can cause as small a thing as an aurora, but in the most extreme situations, it can knock out satellites, it can cause outages to power grids, it can ruin GPS signal. So and they can have profound impacts um, due to these solar winds that come off of the sun due to these explosions on the surface. And so they're trying to better understand those magnetic fields that are surrounding the sun. So previously wow. they could resolve 300 kilometers of the sun, but this new telescope will resolve 25 kilometers. Oh, wow. So that's going to be some high definition sun capture. Yes. And so to get those really, really clear images, they need a very special spot on the surface of the sun to put this telescope and... The surface of the sun. <laughs> Wait, did I say surface of the sun? <laughs> My favorite new construction site. <laughs> <laughs> Who could we send there? <laughs> I have a list. <laughs> but but we have to find the perfect place on Earth to be able to use this very, very, very technologically advanced telescope to view the sun and make valuable measurements without stomping all over people's cultural heritage. Exactly. So that's an, an ongoing important conversation to have. And even though we're far away from Hawaii... This telescope does have the potential to help us here in the Midwest and people all over the world. So it's an important conversation for us all to be aware of. All right, team. So for our third segment, we are going to do our science myth busters. And so in this segment, just as a reminder, we are going to be tackling questions from viewers or myths about science that you've sent us um, or our wonderful friends and family have provided for us. Um, We're just going to deal with some of the interesting, confusing, and sometimes true uh, things that float our way uh, that have to do with science. And what we're going to do is we're going to break them down piece by piece and figure out what they're made of and whether or not you should believe it. All right. So for this first one, I'm very excited about this. Um, because at first I was blown away that this was a thing and I have found some interesting things since then. Um, okay. So how this came about my older brother, who is a hoot, um, called me one day and he knows that in the lab I work with radioactivity. And so I have access to a Geiger counter, which is an instrument that you hear in the movies going dig, 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 dig. And it speeds up when you um, are around radioactivity. Um, so it's a way to measure radioactivity. And he wanted to borrow it because he was concerned that the mushrooms in the store were radioactive. And then I said, um, why do you think this? And he said, he cited the Fukushima um, nuclear meltdown that happened in Japan in 2011, where he claimed that there were reports that um, the radiation had gotten into the mushrooms and that that had then, um, the mushrooms had then been spread across the globe and he was concerned that he was eating radioactive mushrooms. And upon first hearing this, your gut reaction, if you're me 
or Jackie, is that this claim is that this fear is a little ludicrous and might be one of the more outlandish things that I have heard. (laughs) But interestingly, it is not entirely ludicrous. In fact, there is actually a lot of support to this concern of his um, that I had no idea this link between radiation and radioactive contamination and fungi or mushrooms. Um, So just a little breakdown of this whole uh, radioactive mushrooms from Japan. So uh, just as a reminder, if anybody didn't know, um, so the Fukushima was a (coughs) nuclear power plant in Japan that was struck by a tsunami in 2011 that led to the cores um, melting down and the surrounding land um, around Fukushima was very much contaminated. And that included crops and the soil and the air and the water. Um, And they did. They actually had a lot of contaminated food, including mushrooms. And since that time, um, Japan has done really an incredible job monitoring the radiation levels in the food supply and in the livestock. And from the get-go, they were screening uh, the food that was being sold and uh, making sure that nobody was ingesting any of this contaminated food. And there were a few instances of people getting sick from contaminated mushrooms. Um, but this was because people were picking their own mushrooms out in the fields. In the uh, contaminated zones, yes, right? Yes, yeah. in the contaminated zones. So they were, these mm-hmm. mushrooms were soaking up um, the radiation from the soil and from the air into their fruiting bodies and When you eat them, you are eating the radioactive um, elements as well. Thankfully, though, within just months of the disaster, the level of contamination in the mushrooms has dropped to background levels. So, and this was back in 2011, 2012. So they monitored that whole time um, and found that, you know, after this spike during the following months, They did see radiation increase, but then they saw it drop off. So presumably today in 2017, (laughs) they should not even expect radioactive mushrooms in Japan, (laughs) let alone here. Yeah, because the radiation, even by itself, it will disperse very slowly from the surrounding areas. We have, unfortunately, a few other uh, nuclear disasters to look at as sort of a basis for this. Sometimes it's very slow, sometimes it's fast. But with this idea, I think mushrooms don't seem to be long-lived enough to really hang around and maintain that radiation for too long. Right, Jackie? Um, that's. I mean, the the fruiting bodies, at least. I know the mycelium can be widespread and very large, but the fruiting bodies are the flowers, so to speak. Mm -hmm. But what's interesting, kind of adding to this, that You know, he didn't ask about squash. He didn't ask about zucchini. He asked about mushrooms. And in fact, mushrooms, more than other edible things like vegetables, accumulate more radioactivity than others. They they kind of soak it up. And I don't know that we know exactly why that happens, but they do based on the studies in Japan or after the disaster in Japan, as well as other nuclear incidents. They've noticed that mushrooms behave kind of oddly around radiation. In fact, there are these mushroom varieties that actually will grow towards radiation sources. They have somehow adapted that they not only survive, but thrive in the presence of radiation, 
Which is kind of crazy. That is so unusual. But mushrooms have been flipping the script on what it means to be a living creature that grows in the ground for a long time. Because they're not officially a plant. Nor are they. They're closer to an animal Mm -hmm. um, as far as their evolutionary tree goes. And so the fact that they, some forms of mushrooms can even thrive off of radiation as a new form of energy... I mean, as something that's got one foot in the plant world and one foot in the animal world, I kind of get it. It is an energy source. Mm-hmm. It is weird. And it's oh, really yeah. cool. I wonder um, if it's because mushrooms can be so widespread in the, the mycelium underground that they come from. The the actual body of the mush, the mushroom is that we see on top of the ground is such a small piece mm-hmm. of the overall thing. So oh, I wonder yeah. if... If the mycelium is, I think it's mycelium, right? Oh gosh, I know so little about fungi. I went through a big fungi phase. <laughs> um, I wanted to be a fungi biologist for a really long time, and I'm kind of sad that I didn't. But they are so big. I mean, there's some mycelium have been recorded to be like dozens of miles wide in diameter, and they just spread out underneath the ground. And then the mushroom is like the reproductive organ mm-hmm. of the mycelium, which can be so huge. So I wonder if maybe like the large nature of them. Mm-hmm. Of the mycelium, it has the more ability to soak up the radiation, and then it just oh, pops yeah. out with the mushrooms. Yeah, yeah, Very I don't cool. know. It's wild. So ultimately, we've talked about the bizarre fact that mushrooms can and do accumulate radiation. They do. Your brother was not entirely unfounded in his concern. No, he was. He was founded, <laughs> but luckily. We, uh, Japan and probably the world at large has gotten on top of it and recovered from this terrible disaster and learned a lot and our mushrooms and other produce should be safe for your consumption. We'd like to thank Bryce Jensen for the music at the beginning of the show. Thank you to PodTrack for tracking our podcast metrics and analytics. And a big thank you to all of you wonderful listeners for listening to our show and supporting us and supporting science. We really appreciate your enthusiasm. Please don't forget to subscribe and review us on iTunes and join us on our Facebook group at Flyover State Science to share your questions, comments, concerns, and ideas for our Science Mythbusters section. 